You're listening to The Network's podcast, where we talk all things marketing and digital. Hi, I'm Jodie Parker, and I'm part of the team who runs Network's events. Normally, each episode is a live recording of a past panel discussion, but in these COVID-19 times, we've been doing the events virtually. I still think that the magic of Network's is being in the room, and hopefully we can go back to doing that soon. But in the meantime, if you like what you hear, visit networksevents.com.au. This episode is on hyper-personalization. Happy listening. First up, we have Erin Kaur, the head of marketing artistic at Queensland Ballet. Everyone, let's welcome Erin. Secondly, we have James Wayne, director of strategy and data at Ventatech. Welcome, James. And lastly, rounding out our panel, we have Brooke Jamieson, experienced lead and data scientist at Place OS. Let's welcome all our great panelists to the show. So let's get started. So tonight we're going to discover the power of personalization to drive conversion, um, understand the post-COVID-19 landscape, we're going to talk about some inspiration to try new marketing techniques, explore some detailed case studies presented by our industry experts on our panel, and look at some new tools and tips to understand the ever-changing marketing landscape we're all presented with. Now we can get started with our actual panel. So as we saw before, the overarching theme of tonight's event is about connecting data in our post-COVID world and exploring what that means in terms of human connection, since we can't rely on what we used to rely on to connect with our audiences. So as marketers and businesses in Australia, how has our view on connection to our audiences changed? Is the digitization of Australia helping or hindering that connection? So I'll open it up to everyone. Let me know your first impressions, and then we'll get on with some other um, case studies. Oh, Who to wants- jump in first, I would say uh, a key point from what you said is that you said digitization and not digital transformation. Um, and so I work with a lot of companies that are undergoing digital transformation, but a lot of people do get caught up in digitization. And the difference is, is that digitization is just where you get a paper process and put it on the computer, which is totally different to transforming a process and starting from scratch. So I think that's a a key factor in this discussion. Excellent. Anyone else want to talk about that journey? Yeah, I think that's a really good point you make around, you know, being really clear on the language we use and making sure we're all talking of um, the same definitions. You know, it's something we always try to do when we start any kind of digital process because across the whole business, you know, people have different levels of understanding. And I think that's a really good point, Brooke. Um, I think probably personally, you know, digital technology and transformation and digitization is definitely helping us connect at scale. But I really think that tech can get in the way of a true connection sometimes. So, you know, with everyone spending their days just so worried about internal meetings or technology or databases, there's just so many of the fundamentals being missed. So, you know, just bring it back to what real people think and need of you. So I I think uh, one thing that I wanted to call out, I know in the question it talks about how our conceptualization of, of connection has changed. And I think obviously everyone's abundantly familiar with the experience firsthand. Um, but I think it's interesting to um, reflect on how this has fundamentally changed. So connection used to be about going and meeting people quite often. Um, obviously that has shifted massively to a much more virtualized experience. Um, and I think to the, the other aspect of the question, which is um, whether it's helped or hindered uh, in terms of uh, digital transformations and so forth, whether that's helped or or hindered the process of connection. I think it's um, a bit of a mixed bag in actual fact. Um, And certainly when you look at, uh, uh, in some instances, demand outstripping um, supply in terms of people's online experiences, obviously infrastructure, 
uh, struggling to keep up with the demand that, that's placed on it. There's some interesting dynamics that have shifted. And I think businesses in Australia, um, from Queensland's perspective, um, some of the government uh, services have, have obviously had to pretty quickly refine their footing. That's all very true. And I really appreciate, James, you answered that question so thoroughly. You took it, you took it home for me. <laughs> um, so we're going to pass it up to Erin now. You've been particularly challenged to connect to your audiences as Queensland Valley canceled its 2020 season. Can you walk us through how you're staying connected and how you've leveraged data as part of that process? Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Liz. Um, it's been a really interesting year for us. You know, we're certainly using this opportunity to create entirely new ways of connecting with our audiences. And, you know, it's a time where everyone is feeling isolated and missing these normal things that keep them going. So we've really moved as much of our in-person live delivery to a digital format as much as we can. Um, and we've created entirely new products and, and ways of connecting. So I guess as it relates to data and personalization in particular, we're really fortunate that almost every interaction with our business results in some kind of first party data. However, you know, we have the same complication as everyone else. We have multiple databases across our business silos and, you know, pulling together that, our CRM, our third party ticketing platforms, and then using all of that data to kind of pull together and then find the audience with the people that have a higher propensity to try some kind of ballet experience. You know, it's, it's complicated. So I guess I'm going to overview a few projects today um, that we've really, you know, pulled together in the last few months and they've used different kind of data points in different ways. I think we have some slides to help you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> there we go. Lovely. Thank you. So the first one I want to call out is, is a pretty simple little campaign, uh, our Dance Site Outbound Call campaign. So at the start of all the COVID changes, you know, not long after we'd all been sent home for lockdown, we were feeling, you know, so topsy-turvy. Everyone was. We had dancers working from tiny little apartments and our most loyal ballet lovers were at home with no performances to fuel them. So what we did initially was put the two together. So we dug into our CRM data and had our dancers individually call a range of our wonderful patrons just to have a chat. So we looked for people that had a higher propensity to live alone and, and just be more in need of a friendly voice and just a really you know, strong human connection. So I wanted to pull out this one in particular to make sure that everyone's thinking you know, multi-channel when you look to apply the data you have. So it's so easily applied for scale in the digital channel. But in this instance, we had so much personal impact by reverting to just a good old-fashioned telephone call with a really human-friendly approach. You know, they were so delighted to hear the dancers they admire on the end of the phone. And, and oh, really, this is kind of the ultimate kind of personalization. The, the second one I wouldn't mind highlighting is a, a bit more complex and a bit more interesting in terms of the data application. So 60 Dancers, 60 Stories was a, quite a big campaign that we ran through June. It was a world premiere of two brand new short ballets every day. And it was under the banner of our Keep the Magic Alive fundraising campaign. So we set a pretty crazy target of $1 million to achieve through the month of June. And it was a whole of business effort. So we had dancers working from home, from parks, from beaches, creating entirely new pieces with choreographic mentors. We had our music team composing new tracks. And we even had our artistic staff learning to edit and film and create so much wonderful content. 
because of the quality of content and, and the amazing um, creativity they demonstrated from a marketing sense, we had to make sure we were using marketing to really maximize the reach to the right audiences and importantly, compel them to donate. We mapped out a series of emails and we segmented uh, different lists from our CRM to reach known and engaged audiences initially, kind of makes sense. And then we asked them to subscribe to weekly campaign email updates. And of course, we dropped a tracking pixel on the web page, so we were then able to retarget people who had visited but not subscribed. We spent just a tiny little amount on paid social and digital ads across Queensland, Sydney and Melbourne using a combination of lookalike audiences from our first party list and then interest targeting to those who were interested in ballet, performing arts and culture. We used that to optimise both our messaging and also our geographic targeting. So we pulled Sydney out of the mix after a couple of weeks because it just wasn't performing. And then we then matched those lists uh, based on people who donated to kind of target those who had engaged with content but not um, taking the next step of donating to the fundraiser. It was pretty amazing. It actually worked by the end. So we reached our target of $1 million a couple of days before our deadline. It was a really amazing outcome. The third one I'd love to touch on today is a campaign that's still live right now. So Ballet Beat Drop is uh, a dance challenge based on TikTok, and it's an annual partnership promotion that we run in conjunction with Suncorp, our principal partner. So usually the major prize is a walk-on role in the Nutcracker at the end of the year for a young child. However, this year, with our whole season postponed to, to next year, we had a really interesting opportunity to open up participation to anyone across the world. So we built... And um, we built a competition using a hashtag challenge mechanic, and we integrated this across TikTok, TV, email, social, publicity, and, and industry publications. So when you think about the theme of today, which is hyper-personalization, for us, TikTok was a really interesting way to experiment with that because the content personalization is just how the app works. You know, it serves you an individual feed of content that you're more likely to engage with. So we started with a top view ad, which we'll play for you now. So it's pretty fun, you know, dance challenges are at the heart of TikTok. Um, and I guess what you might not see directly from that is, is the amount of uh, effort and content that went into that. So we filmed more than 30 versions of the ballet beat drop and we posted from our official account, from our dancers' accounts, from our academy students' accounts, and even, you know, some of our staff accounts to fuel some of that virality and momentum within the app itself. And we've targeted this to both dance lovers and dance studios because they're the lifeblood of Queensland dance education. So we've got tiered prize categories depending on where you're from. So now we've built some momentum in TikTok. As of today, I, I saw a report we had over 150 million views on the hashtag. We're now using that data to invite people outside of the TikTok platform. So we're using our segmented lists, uh, our interest in geographic targeting, and of course, retargeting those who engage with the content and try to capture more first-party first data for further updates. So if you're on TikTok or not, go and have a look at Ballet Beat Drop as a hashtag or balletbeatdrop.com.au and have a go. You know, you could win $5,000. 
Thanks, Aaron. Well, that was, you've set the bar really high this evening. You've raised a million dollars. You have dancers calling people and you have a successful TikTok campaign. So really exciting things happening over at Queensland Ballet. And with that, we'll pass it on to James. Now, James, you're a bit different. You advise clients on leveraging data to connect to objectives. What is the key to doing this well? And tell us about the examples you brought. Thanks, Elizabeth. So uh, if we could start by uh, throwing up my slides, that'd be great. Um, before I jump into it, I think it's important to um, start by acknowledging um, that putting data into decisioning and what is ostensibly developing an analytics capability is not trivial. Um, and, you know, I think it, it's worth acknowledging that. Um, and indeed, uh, to some varying degree, businesses get the importance of data. Many businesses indeed um, will... Uh, be invested to some degree, whether it's a full department, whether it's uh, individuals and smaller companies, uh, to extracting insights and driving that into their decisioning. Um, but more often than not, um, a recurrent theme I encounter when working with clients is that the a level of frustration that exists um, that companies encounter in trying to actually extract the value, the full value potential um, from uh, their analytics undertakings and the insights that they're generating. Um, and this is sort of underscored, uh, I'll just throw up a statistic um, for some recent research. Um, this was US executives leading uh, organizations that admitted to uh, essentially uh, not competing on analytics, right? So doing analytics or producing reports, producing analytics insights is to some degree um, relatively straightforward, but actually weaving that into the organization, putting that at the heart of organizational decisioning um, is is evidently um, a, a widespread challenge. And so moving into my next slide, I think there are five items um, that go into essentially uh, that, that it's important to, to weave into uh, the sort of decision-making fabric of an organization and essentially um, uh, help embed and drive insights. Uh, and so we have, first off, uh, there's operational context. It's really important to get um, a firm grip on uh, the operating environment of the business and really understand that, get under the skin of the business. Um, and that naturally goes hand in hand with ensuring um, that there's trust in the data, there's primacy of data quality, um, which is why I've put an asterisk next to this. Um, that logically feeds into, and more often than not, you'll see demand for analytics and insights within organizations uh, far outstrips uh, the resource and availability uh, to service those demands. And that's where prioritization comes in. It's a really important component. Another element is having a really strong value focus um, within the organization and within the activities of work streams um, that, that uh, are in flight. And finally, uh, an often missed uh, component is ensuring that the value of data and insights that are produced are actually actions. You've really got to commit um, to actuating the insights uh, within the organization. So if we break these into a little more detail, um, you know, I think in my next slide, we uh, deconstruct this and look a little more detail as to what it actually means. So first up, if we take operational context and look at what that um, is comprised of, um, then the first priority item is to get clarity and alignment within the organization um, around a vision. So what is the business trying to achieve? It's really important to have clarity there. Uh, often this is uh, formally articulated in a vision statement uh, in a lot of leading organizations. 
Um, and that naturally, the flow on from that is clarity of the strategy goals and objectives that everyone um, can align around. And the vision statement serves um, to really provide that common cause for people, a rallying cry, if you like, uh, for people to fall in behind and create alignment um, in key stakeholders. The other component here is really uh, getting a deep understanding of the maturity of the organizational uh, capabilities or the elements of the capability that essentially comprise uh, insights and analytics. Um, and so what a lot of organizations will do is invest in understanding uh, their current state, their future state. Uh, and the key there is to identify key constraints and limiting factors across the components of an analytics capability, things such as the governance, the culture, the organizational um, behaviors, processes, ways of working, the data, the technology, all of these key elements that that are up into an analytics capability um, essentially need to um, uh, be understood and a roadmap laid out to get them from their current state to future state, grow their capability, grow their maturity. Um, the next element um, is obviously data quality. I mean, it's fairly self-explanatory to some extent, um, but you know, there's an obvious uh, and recurrent theme when talking with clients that they really haven't mastered uh, quality assurance of data. So MDM projects, uh, automated quality assurance projects, uh, especially in larger organizations, are often um, found lacking. Um, and a key element there is to make sure that there is um, a, a sort of a universal view of the data that's federation of the data sources that are available um, and that essentially, um, you know, companies work to ensure that uh, they can leverage all of their data assets um, and have robust data models and their global ID strategies to, to identify customers across interaction points, which is a critical component in hyper-personalization. So the next element that that then leads into, um, and I've already touched on this, is around prioritization. Um, so once we understand where we're trying to get to, we've got trust and confidence in the data, we start to look at um, how we focus our efforts and atten attention around, um, around the, the organizational uh, initiatives. Um, and it's key to ensure that you have sort of disciplined, agile ways of working, clear roles and responsibilities. Um, fairly straightforward and obvious stuff, but not always present in a, in a lot of organizations, not formalized at least. And, and that's often a, an opportunity um, that gets missed. And I think the ability, especially with agile ways of working, backlog grooming, dynamic prioritization, um, a key element there is making sure that um, the, the most priority work is, is going into your sprints and put at the top, uh, top of the focus for the, for the teams delivering against that. Then feeding in um, to uh, the next item, uh, which we have, uh, you know, is an unswerving value focus. So when I'm working with team, my team, when I'm working with clients, often I'll probably wax on a little bit too much about value, but a value focus and going after where in, in two, two respects. One is to understand where value sits within your customer base, where that value resides, what the distribution looks like. Um, but the other is to also make sure that insights and analytics are focused around the priority user journeys, the priority segments, the priority items uh, that, you know, uh, are become apparent once you start to dig into the data and piece together a sort of cohesive uh, understanding of, of your user base. And then finally, um, actuation. Now, insights obviously are, are useless unless they're actually brought to bear. Uh, and so a, a recurrent element that, that is, uh, or a common pairing between uh, insights to 
to drive uh, business objectives is an experimentation program. Um, and it's important to, to leverage those to validate hypotheses um, where possible um, and to make sure that uh, impact is measured clearly and understood, um, tying back to the ROI for, for working back your ROI and calculating feeding back uh, into your um, prioritization activities. Um, and I think, you know, uh, the, the final item is making sure that obviously you bring to bear the best of uh, a possible experience at any given interaction point at any point in time. Thanks, James. We've had a question from the audience from Aaron. So just want to let everyone know you can still ask questions and we've had a live action one. Um, the audience member did ask, did the dancers enjoy calling your members? And is it something you'll be doing ongoing basis? Um, I think great questions. We're exploring so many options right now. We, we're not in a position to really rule anything out. And I think they really did. You know, there was um, mixed feedback across everything, you know, like any kind of personal um, uh, contact like that. It's a bit up and a bit down and sometimes. But I think overall the feedback was that there was a real connection made um, and they enjoyed being able to talk to people who are often just, you know, in an audience or more removed from them. Wow, oh, Awesome. So now we'll go back to Brooke. Um, Brooke, you specialize in data-driven strategy. What are your, yeah? What are your top tips to organizations looking to transition to data-driven marketing, as a traditional channels may be limited? And who should be watching in this space for insights? Yeah. So I have a lot of slides to go on with this because <laughs> there's parts to this question. Um, so first of all, this first cartoon. Tom Fishburne runs Marketunist, and I love these cartoons. Um, so for some context, everyone. So I have a degree in pure mathematics. And when I finished my degree, I wanted to do something that was not maths for a while. So I became an e-commerce marketing manager. And I built a company up from really quite small to really quite large. And I did that by harnessing data at a time that this wasn't happening at all. Um, and then now I design tech that helps non-data people make the most out of the data that's generated by their smart buildings. So I work for a global smart building company with about a quarter of a million end users worldwide. Um, and I come back to this, this cartoon all the time because it's sort of like people who hoard their data and they just want to hoard it in their garage and they just want to have it. They don't want to do anything with it. They just want to know that they have data. And then they end up with these dashboards that have so many elements on them that they don't know what's actually important anymore. And they've lost sight of where they're actually going. Um, so on my next slide, the first thing to think about is with data-driven marketing is uh, what are you being driven by and where are you being driven to? Um, now this road looks really chaotic. This is actually in Brisbane. Um, this is a spaghetti junction is the name of it. It's in Bowen Hills. It's sort of where like the ICB and airport link but the key factor here is that it looks really chaotic from the top down, but it doesn't feel chaotic to drive on. You can sort of drive on a clear path. You can get where you need to be, but you don't really notice the terror around you um, while you're going through it. So I would say that any sort of data that you're using for decision making, but specifically in marketing, it's about looking through the chaos to see a solution. I think there's so many inputs like everyone else has talked about this different CRMs and different databases and different levels of engagement from people. But if you stay solutions driven, it will really help clear this whole aspect up. Um, I have a whole article on my LinkedIn about being data driven and not data derailed. Um, I won't get into all that today, but I really would encourage you to read that if you're new, but also not new to data, because I think it's really easy to get sort of stuck 
on one side, but you really need to stay on your own path. Um, and then, so on the next slide, um, the best advice I ever received as a child was that there's a difference between running from something and running to something. And that's so relevant to both data-driven marketing and also hyper-personalization. Um, you can get into these things because you're running away from, oh, I don't want to be a traditional marketer or I don't want to be a traditional business, but you're not running towards something that's saying, I want to generate value for my company or I would like to do a great job or I would like to find new ways to reach new customers. There's a really big difference between these two aspects and it's so important to make sure that you're really focused on how you can actually get through and the goal you have in mind. Because if you're not setting a goalpost, there's no way that you'll know if you've achieved it at any point. Um, so things like SMART goals, I encourage everyone to look up, but essentially it's a way of saying, you could say, oh, I would like to lose weight. Or you could say, I would like to lose five kilos by the 31st of December because it's um, SMART, so specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and with a time constraint. And all of these things help to make sure that you will actually achieve that goal. Um, and the next slide is all about one of my favorite books, which is Principles by Ray Dalio. Uh, Ray Dalio is actually a hedge fund manager, but I recommend this book to everyone that I mentor because it's so important in creating a framework of systems that will really help you to attack the larger problems in your life. I think it's hard, especially with data-driven marketing, like there's so many moving pieces at play, but how do you actually find a way to win with all of this chaos around you, like I was talking about before? Um, so essentially, it's a five-step thing. So at the start, you set the goals that we were just talking about. Um, but then number two, really importantly, is problems. Because if you try to make any change, there will be problems along the way. It could be, oh, we don't have connection between these two data sets, or the data is completely unorganized in one of them, or we can't use it, or something hasn't been set up correctly. That's a really big point of inflection, because that's the part where you choose whether you'll deal with the problems existing or whether you will make a change to improve that. Um, and that's often the point where data-driven marketing stops for a lot of people because that's where it gets hard. <laughs> so I would say to definitely power through that. And then diagnosis is all about working about the root cause of the problem. So is your technology not connected because no one's taking it seriously or it's not being maintained or the value of this hasn't been communicated? So it's all about actually getting to the root cause of what's happening. And then the chart sort of starts to go up when you make um, when you design the solution for it. And number five is all about doing it. And I think that's also a really big part that some people think about. They get so excited when they've presented their idea to the executives and then they just don't ever actually do it. Um, so I would really focus on the last part as well. But just know that it's a journey and this loop sort of keeps going up and up. That's what the diagram is because every decision you make will go through this process. And that's the same with any aspect of data. Um, when you do online courses sometimes or you watch someone talk about it, they'll be like, oh, it's great. You just click this and connect to this and then this magical result happens. But life is not fair. That probably won't actually happen for you. Um, but unless you go into it with the mindset of how can I still find a way to win and how can I solve the problems that inevitably arise, uh, then you won't get to the end result in the end. Um, and the last slide, I just wanted to talk about the urgency of the situation. Um, if you are only just exploring the idea of data-driven marketing, you need to move really quickly. Um, at the end of the day, marketing sort of like a marketplace in the way that you're really comp competing with everyone else in the landscape for who will get that dollar from that consumer. So if everyone else you're competing against 
is already using all of these techniques and technologies and you're not, you're behind them already. So I would say to act quickly, but also act in a way that is smart. So the 80-20 rule, look, I've built my career on the 80-20 rule, um, but usually 20% of the available data will end up leading to about 80% of the valuable insights that you actually need to get from that data. So if you're really new, what I would do is when you're thinking about where you are, where you want to be, and how you can use data to get yourself there, think about the data that's actually important in how you're going to make those decisions, and then focus on that first so you have some nice first steps to work on. Um, you can go through and do everything really thoroughly when you're feeling really confident, but definitely make a really smart and calculated decision about where you start in the first place. Yeah. Thanks so much, Brooke. So uh, the thing I think that I love about networks is we've brought three individuals who have touched data in different ways and are engaging it in very different ways in their careers. Um, so the beauty of that is we have a lot of different viewpoints on the topic. So I want to take it back to something that Brooke raised earlier, which is like, where are the humans in all this? So we rely quite heavily on digital and technology to record this data for us to leverage it. But how do the humans fit back into the story? Where do you think the human element is? Who's going to go first? I'll go. Um, the human thing that's really important to start with is make sure when you're doing any level of personalization and specifically hyper-personalization that you're talking with someone and not at them. It's really easy to take it as an opportunity to be really creepy and find out <laughs> something really specific about them, but it's so important to go through and think of what am I having a conversation with them? Am I allowing them to make a decision? What does the human at the other end actually want? They'll probably tell you if you give them the opportunity to. So definitely as a dialogue and not a one-way one-way transaction. Yeah, I'll, I'll come back to that also. I think that's a great point. Um, and, you know, I think it, it, it's something that you intuit naturally when you're being communicated with rather than at to the point point made. And I think it's really important and essential to, to demonstrate sort of an integrity in the execution, right? Just because you can do things and you can do an enormous amount of things in terms of predictive horsepower of data when it's brought to bear, um, you know, one should also be mindful of um, the ethical implications, I think, and some of the more nuanced considerations as are you actually showing empathy with the user? And I think uh, I won't call out any names, but it's been interesting during the COVID period to see how different organisations um, have communicated to me personally, um, just a sample size of one. Um, you know, examples where businesses sort of got it right, where they've struck that balance of a sort of humanistic conversation. Um, and those that haven't and that are just uh, fairly shamelessly piggybacking on a crisis and using it to sell uh, overtly things that where it's not necessarily relevant or applicable. And I think that's a fine line um, to, to walk more often. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point as well. I mean, um, you talk about specific language and copy as well. I mean, don't underestimate the importance of, of creative and creativity and um, the language you use and how all of that comes through. I mean, just be really human about it, you know, step back from how many versions of this and that and all the kind of tech around it. Be like, okay, how am I going to feel when I get this? How does this feel as it's connected to my brand? What's the emotional sense I'm getting from this as well? And then, you know, worry about the details that falls through after that. Well, then I'm going to take a question from the audience now, and this, I think, is aimed towards James. James, do you want to elaborate a bit more about the ethics of personalization and connecting to humans through some of these technologies? Well, there's a tricky one. You um, opened yourself so to it. 
I did, I did. I, you know, I'll take it. So I think this, and, and actually this, this quite nicely segues um, into one of the topics I'll touch on later, which comes back to trust. And I think it's a, a, a very uh, related bedfellow to, to the topic of trust um, more broadly. Um, but I mean, there are many examples uh, in the literature where companies have crossed the lines uh, in terms of predicting um, behaviors or, uh, uh, or rather use the data that they have to um, impute uh, what people are up to, in some cases and nefarious uh, indeed things uh, that they wouldn't necessarily uh, want um, spoken to in, in marketing collateral that comes through them. You know, whether that's door drop creatives and we talk about some of these creatives, they can be fairly revealing. Um, and certainly from some of the UK examples, I know that you can uh, tell a story by looking in some of the more advanced uh, retailers could tell quite a, an interesting story of looking at the products they're, they're pushing towards me. Um, you know, in, and, and indeed the lifestyle, Amazon, uh, I think, do a, a reasonably good job at this. But uh, one example of the ethics, they target me quite heavily. I've got two young daughters. Um, and I think that's very tricky where you start to um, leverage the data that you have um, or, 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 or the imputations that you're using to use uh, and, and target and personalize messaging and sales and to try and um, influence the emotional state. I think it gets very tricky uh, in terms of emotional manipulation. Um, and indeed, there, I think it's way back, 2012, Facebook uh, were doing some experimentation as an example, um, and they were called out by their user base because they were looking to see whether different uh, visual arrangements in their newsfeed influenced um, the emotional state of the user. So if you put more or less positive news in their newsfeed, whether following on from that point, those people were more or less likely to uh, post positive or negative things. So some pretty sketchy things that you can get into, and indeed there was big outcry at the time. Uh, there are many other examples like that, of course. Anyone else consider the ethics of hyper-personalization in their marketing campaigns that they want to comment on? Um, not with marketing, but the ethics of this is something that I work really closely with all the time at my job. So I experience Leaf Place OS. Essentially, we get all the tech within a building, usually a workplace, to play nicely with each other, herding cats in a way. And then we strip everything down to a useful data source, and then we can automate and create digital experiences on top of that. Um, as a result, we know we can help uh, people see where they are in each floor. So if you've got like a seven story office building and everyone's hot desking, you can see on your phone where your colleague is to go and talk to them. Um, companies could say, oh, how long do all our employees spend in the bathroom? We just don't <laughs> do that. Um, and it's definitely choices made along the way. Um, and earlier, I think James mentioned it, that just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And being a leader in any technological field, but especially this one, is all about guiding people to make the right decision and then standing up for what you believe is the ethical decision. Because it is new and sometimes it isn't a gold standard to follow, but that doesn't mean that you can't make one. Well, you set yourself up quite well, Brooke, for our next question, which is about um, we're all heading back to the office, or some of us might be, some of us might be debating the pros and cons. Um, since you do work in offices, uh, what challenges are you working on overcoming using the data you have, which you've mentioned? Right. Um, so this bit is less exciting than it could be because currently a lot of my work that I've been doing is under heavy legal protection. We're waiting for a few uh, press releases to come out. So watch this space and this will make more sense soon. Um, but essentially what I do is 
Yes, I am the user experience lead, and that means I do essentially human-centered design, which shockingly keeps humans at the center of the design process. And we help that to, we help make sure people have a great day at work. So that means they, how do they feel like they're the most productive? Um, and then how can we help create that experience for them? So this can be, we can book someone a car park in the basement, and then we can give them access up to their floor to a desk that's automatically booked for them or uh, in a meeting room like this one, all of the technology set to their preferences when they arrive because we know their booking, for example, because we have access to their calendar and their active directory and then all of the hardware and software in the space. Um, so definitely hurting cats in that way. But one thing that I've been doing as I design COVID features for our global clients who are going back to work under different legislation and different sort of health climates, I'll call them, um, but it's all about a lot of people have used this time to work from home and learn how they actually feel productive. So a lot of what I've been doing is how can we create the, the moments of flow that people had at home when they felt like they were doing their best work? How can we help them to feel that in the office? And then how can we help to keep them safe and healthy? Um, and another part of this as well is making sure we're using data along the way. There's a really... Uh, a lot of companies are saying, oh, we'll have more cleaning in the building now that we're going back. But because we know where everyone is in the building and we know which doors they've gone through, we can then say, these doors need cleaning. They've been used the most. Um, or we can help with contact tracing within an office or we can help with all of these parts that seem really difficult to do. But given the technology that already exists and my company's been around for quite a while, um, it's pretty established databases in a lot of our global clients it's really good to get those results and move forward from them. Um, yeah, and just definitely about keeping people happy and healthy and then helping everyone to leave what was bad about the workplace back before COVID, in the before COVID times, and then really move forward with the future that they would like to build for themselves. Because now that everything's sort of been broken down, I think a lot of people, when they go back to the office, are hoping to make some really positive changes. And it's all about how can we create that best environment for them. Well, I wish I had a brook at my office to sort things out and make me happier, but I don't think we all have that luxury because the work you, you do sounds really fascinating and benefits a lot of great people. But for those of us who don't have a brook, Erin, um, you, I think, have mentioned in the past the importance of choosing the right partners on your data-driven journey. What do you look for when you're teaming with um, a partner to deliver a data-driven campaign? What, how do you even know what data you even need? How do you guide through that if you're not a data scientist or as bright or as, I guess as engaged as Brooke is with the math side of things. Yes, I, I wish I had a degree like that. That sounds very useful. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think so many of us are in the same place where, you know, we're, we've, we've used data throughout our careers and it's always evolving and we're always learning new stuff. So I think um, what's really important for me in choosing the right partners is, is see if you can find someone that tells you what you need before you know you need it or, or can bring something new to the table. If you're the, um, as a client in particular, if you're driving that discussion and you know everything, maybe maybe you're not in the quite quite the right room. You know that's why you employ specialists and that's why you employ external people. You know they have to be the smartest person in the room for their specialization. So you know of course they need to be good humans and they need to kind of get excited about it as well. And I think you know uh, data ultimately strip it all the way down. It's just information. So. I guess that what we're looking to is, you know, get to a point where we can use our data in a really predictive way and not just in 
explanatory way. So foresight, not hindsight. And if I can find someone that aligns with those objectives, then you know we're in the right page. So you know, we um, we recently started working with the audience group, and one thing they immediately saw was our the opportunity to connect our third-party ticketing site transactions to our digital media placements for a real-time picture of sales attribution from our media investments. So for us, real-time is just so important because ticket sales can change daily, and we really need that agility to upweight media and change messaging or pull out of market quickly if we sell out or, or have to cancel, as the case has been for this year. So, you know, there's a real value there in having an informed data-driven approach, especially for us around attribution um, and helping to drive the efficiency of resource allocation, you know, financial and human. Particularly for Queensland Ballet, you know, 50% of our funding comes from philanthropy. So knowing the attribution of our investment makes sure we spend every one of those donated dollars very wisely. Oh, it's such a, such a dense answer, Erin. I want to ask all the questions, but we have to keep moving. But there's just so much to unpack there. And James, you are one of those suppliers as well, so I'm sure you'd have feedback on that. But we're going to move a bit to you, James. Um, you've recently moved from the UK, and I know there's sometimes a bit of a bit of an attitude in Brisbane that we're not as cool as you know the Northern Hemisphere. So I want to know um, what are your key what are some key learnings you can share um, from your overseas projects that might be of interest to our audience. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Elizabeth. So perhaps we can start by throwing up uh, my slide. There we go. So I think um, one there's one particular topic that I wanted to talk to um, specifically because, you know, I think there seems to be um, more focus in Europe uh, and the US around the topic, and that is the topic of trust. Um, and, you know, it logically follows to a large degree a function of, in Europe, the introduction of uh, fairly draconian legislation around uh, how data should be used and consented and permission management and so on and so forth that many people will, of course, heard of GDPR, uh, General Data Protection Regulations. Um, and, you know, potentially, I think organisations and certainly leading organisations um, within uh, Europe and the US really approach um, the topic um, with a slightly different mindset and with a lot more focus. And so it can be quite a dry topic. So I've started off with a couple of stats uh, from some consumer research. Um, the guys uh, at Salesforce uh, published this year around the state of the connected customer. And I think the first pair of numbers, I think, are, are quite interesting, uh, wherein consumers, uh, 63%, I'll read it out because it's quite small on the slide, 63% of consumers say that uh, most companies aren't transparent about how um, their data is used. And following on from that, 54% of customers said that most companies um, don't use the data in a way that benefits them, or, or at least that's their perception. Um, following on from that, the next pair of data is perhaps a little more worrying still, which is uh, around 72% of customers would stop buying uh, from a company using a service due to privacy concerns. Uh, and indeed, 48% of those uh, consumers have in fact stopped buying a from a company um, on the back of a service due to privacy concerns. So I think if there were ever a, a couple of uh, pairs of data that you wanted to use to uh, garner focus uh, and, you know, um, really sort of uh, set the, the, the focus of the conversation, you know, it's evident and obvious that the stakes are high. Um, and I think certainly there's also uh, growing importance around the topic. Um, and if we kick into the next slides, I think um, 
the, the growing importance, of course, especially in the context of hyper-personalization, is indeed um, the, the announcement, uh, already the case in, in the instance of Safari, but Google and the Chromium project, indeed, that underpins also Microsoft's Edge browser, uh, have announced um, that by the end of, uh, I think it's 2022, they're going to uh, pull back uh, support for or remove support and block uh, third-party cookies. Um, so the whole... Um, cookie conversation we could talk about it extensively there's a lot of interesting uh, material around the uh, and around the web on this topic um, but indeed you know there's a lot of dependencies on the technologies used in marketing today um, that are underpinned by uh, third and first party cookies um, and so I think you know in the context of that where uh, the, um, the the primacy and the priority is growing the the obvious countermeasure um, where cookies crumble is going to be what I call the rising tide of authentication um, and so we're going to see, uh, if we kick into the next slide, um, we, we're going to see um, eff effectively uh, a, a shift that, that is to some extent forced rather than voluntary, where companies are going to have to um, reframe how they approach trust. And I see this a lot more in Europe, whereby uh, trust as a sort of compliance exercise uh, evolves into uh, trust as a, as a sort of an exercise that can help drive competitive advantage. Um, and so, Obviously, the focus tends to be around, in the first instance, making sure that there's a robust privacy and assurance programs, and that speaks to the compliance mindset. And indeed, that's a table stake, right? That has to be there. It's got to be taken seriously, uh, and indeed, companies need to um, make sure that that's in place. And then where it starts to then emerge into areas where they can differentiate the, the execution by which they achieve the, the, the compliance and the permissioning. So being transparent around, around how they're using data, uh, ensuring that there's ease of consent management. Again, you know, consumers are starting to uh, clock onto and read these uh, T's and C's and juxtapose um, their experiences of those uh, technologies and the consent management and permissioning. And if you're at the back of the pack and have a very sort of um, painful and uh, protracted articulation of how you use data or it's not forthcoming, um, you're going to start to be at a disadvantage to those that are. And indeed, you know, moving beyond that, I think it's going to be essential to increasingly um, have a meaningful conversation where you are relevant and you resonate with your, your customers, especially against the backdrop of, of what's happening in, with cookies, um, is that companies are going to need a strategy to understand how they're going to get users to engage. What is the value exchange? How are you going to ensure that... Uh, people are um, compelled to identify. Um, and this is going to you know, raise some really interesting um, challenges for certain sectors where the, the default user behavior is perhaps to browse and uh, undertake early stages of research in a, an anonymous state. Um, so I think there's, there's definitely um, a need for organizations to start focusing around how they're going to compete, how they're going to um, encourage and elicit a, a sort of a more... Uh, slick experience where users are compelled to log in. Excellent, James. We have another question from the audience, which I think you've triggered as well. Um, how do you juggle the privacy restrictions of data when you bring different data sources together? Well, I think that's a really good question. Um, and, you know, you have to have uh, you know, uh, uh, be very familiar with uh, the local uh, legislation that applies because it's going to vary depending upon uh, where you're uh, interfacing with your customers, where you're storing the data. Uh, and there's a lot to it, right? It's not a trivial undertaking. Um, but I think uh, you need to make sure, I mean, certainly in the case of GDPR, um, you need, you know, there's a very clear set of bullet points that you have to go through um, to pass uh, what some people refer to as the red phase test. 
right? Which is, uh, you know, if I'm a consumer, would I reasonably expect uh, a given uh, company to be using my data in such a way? And there's a, there's a myriad, of, uh, myriad of others, for example, ensuring that users have the right to erasure um, and that that cascades through your systems, that you don't retain uh, people's information as and when they request that it be uh, expunged from your systems and so on and so forth. And there's quite a lot to it, actually. I'm conscious of not wanting to waffle on too much, Elizabeth. <laughs> That's okay. So this evening we've, we've chatted quite a bit about approaching the problem of gathering data, what we're going to do with that data, the ethics and legalities of the data. And I think Queensland Ballet really explored what campaigns you can form by looking at your existing data. So let's say in the future, we're permanently locked down, COVID never ends. Um, do we think virtual experiences crafted by all this data we have about um, our consumers, um, do we think that's going to be a real thing that's going to replace customer experiences? Uh, can I just jump in? I've, I've quite a strong view on this. Oh, I think, Karen, you go for it because you work in the performing <laughs> arts. So this is a, probably a very hot topic amongst your community. Absolutely. And look, I think the very short answer is will it replace? Absolutely not. Um, you know, if you think about experiences from a culture and arts perspective, social interaction is the key driver for people to attend things and, and go mm. to all of that. So any digital experience that we explore also needs to address the social nature of arts engagement and, you know, provide opportunity for a social proof or, or something that it lets you experience that as a crowd or with other people. Um, and I've even got, you know, some, some data on this particular point. So the July 2020 audience outlook monitor being run by the Australia Arts Council shows that while people are attending um, uh, online experiences, so 73% are experiencing arts and culture online, only 4 in 10 would prefer a digital stream mm. in comparison to a live attendance. So they're doing it, but it is not their preference. You know, 3 in 10, in addition to that, would prefer an outdoor venue with enough space to, to socially distance themselves. Um, so I think they're very happy to have some kind of opportunity to do these things, but it's not their preference. And um, there was one uh, particular article in the Garden, uh, the Guardian, sorry, that Bridget and Delaney wrote, where she experienced a whole three-day online festival, you know, trivia, orchestral music, arts, ballet, all sorts of things. And she made the wonderful point at the end of, you know, it was wonderful sharing this, but it's not the same online. You know, it's kind of like the proverbial tree falling in the forest. Did the festival really happen if there was no one there to share it with? That raises a really good point, I guess. The tree in the yeah, forest I debate. <laughs> Brooke, you would like to comment on that one? Yeah, and I would say the notion of experience has changed quite a lot. Um, like when email first came out, everyone was saying, oh, this will never replace snail mail. We'll love to send letters forever. And I think as things have changed, people have realized that there's room for both um, and they're good for different things. And it's more about instead of saying everyone will like what we tell them to like, back to personalization, it's about really extending your offerings and working out what your customers actually find valuable and how you can use what's available to create value for people because it might not be the same. Um, and even with retail, we've seen such a change in how retailers are operating. Uh, before there was such a, people were saying, oh no, we don't want e-commerce. People want to shop in store. But even now people, when they do shop in store are usually shopping on their phone at the same time to compare prices. And now we just accept that as something to move forward. So I think there's room for everything. It's just a matter of actually listening to what your customers are asking for and then working out how you can really do that to the best of your ability. 
So I think that brings us back to one of our final questions of the evening, which is the future of marketing as a whole. And I guess how data is going to play a role in that. So let's pretend we're marketers in 2025. Where will the humans fit and what obstacles will we have to overcome? And I think Brooke has a slide on that one as well. Yeah. So one of my favorite Instagram accounts is called Public Domain Revolution. Um, I highly encourage anyone to follow it. It's great. But essentially, it gets lots of really old art that's now in the public domain. Um, and these are all, it's called a uh, 19th century vision of the year 2000. Um, and these are done by French artists around the turn of the century. And what you'll notice is the whole set is a wild ride. I recommend looking at all of them. These are just four, but they're really off the mark. And I think this is because at the time people were not thinking far enough beyond the technology that was available to them. Like they're just looking at the experiences they have and then trying to make them future rather than visualizing something else. Um, and as someone that talks about, like I talk about the future of work all the time and people think that they'll arrive to the office in a spaceship, but usually that just means that things in the office actually work, um, which for a lot of people is a bright future if things actually start to work and they can actually do their job. So I would say just keep tied to people and think instead about what is it that you specifically are good at? Like, I think marketers are good at doing unique value propositions for products or services, but really get back to it and decide that about yourself um, and think about what is it that you are good at? How can you hone those skills and prepare yourself for a future that you don't need to imagine yet? I think it's a waste of time in some respects to think of, oh, when will I get my flying car or my, what is that, a fireman with wings? Um, just accept that, you don't really know what's coming, but if you don't know what's coming, the best thing that you can do is just be the best version of yourself. So seek training in what interests you and what you're already good at, and then really double down on that so you can just instead be ready for whatever happens. It really does sound like, I guess, embracing data-driven is just the way it's going to be, I suppose. Does any other panelists want to comment on the future of marketing in that light? Yeah, I'll pitch in here. I think... Um, there's been some pretty sort of interesting developments recently that, that I think are worth noting. And, and perhaps we should be also keeping a weather, weather eye on some of the uh, sort of influential entities uh, in the equation here, obviously notably being uh, Google and Facebook. And indeed, um, I don't know if anyone saw, but it was probably a couple of weeks ago, perhaps last month, um, Facebook announced some new uh, really funky-looking uh, VR glasses, as an example, right? Uh, indeed, Google are, are sort of uh, behind the scenes. They've been competing for years, arguably, on VR. Um, but I think looking at these guys pushing the technological boundaries, keeping an eye on what they're actually filing for patents and things of this nature, if you want to sort of be a, a quasi-futurologist, right, keeping a, uh, abreast of what might be coming down the pike, as it were, um, is, is, a, is an important one and, and something that, uh, I think you can uh, uh, sort of while away quite a lot of time, obviously, on the web, uh, scratching around. But I think uh, the future of, of interaction and marketing is going to be much more heavily driven by virtualized experiences. And as marketers professionally, um, I think we're going to see a massive growth in the ease with which we can interrogate and sweat data assets. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. And you have a last word on that one? Oh, look, I, I don't think I can top that. I think I would just echo Brooke's sentiments in that, you know, focus on, on kind of your human strengths um, and, and use the, the technology and the data available to, to strengthen those. So, you know, automation frees up 
those uh, marketers from having to do those repetitive tasks. So you can focus on the thinking things more like strategy. Excellent. And with that, we will wrap up that portion of the show. And I think we'll go now into our top tips. And this is a great chance for our panelists to showcase how they think. And if you identify with panelists, I think we also share these on social media that you can have a look at those resources as well. So we'll start out with Aaron. Top tip. Top tip. Uh, Michael Porter here. Um, the essence of strategy is choosing what not to do. And I, it was quite pleasing for me to hear earlier both Jade and Brooke talked about this sentiment. You know, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. You know, choose not to do certain things. You know, if you don't have your basics in mind, don't necessarily jump onto a trend. You know, hyper-personalization is a tool. It's something else you can use in your arsenal. It is not the only thing. So think about what the best choices are for you to, to win effectively, which is what a good strategy should do. Excellent. James? So I think for me, there's a couple of points I wanted to make here. One was to uh, pitch up... Um, speaking to futurology and keeping abreast of the latest trends, um, The Exponential View, which is a podcast uh, for a guy uh, uh, based out of London, uh, Azim Azar, uh, that I uh, get a lot of value from. Uh, and indeed, he covers a lot of interesting conversations, has a lot of uh, great guests on his show that I would recommend anyone wanting to say sharp and ahead of the curve um, would consider listening to or checking out. And I think the the, the other uh, quote there really, I think, is, is sort of apposite in the current times, right, where we're all uh, working through challenges to varying degrees. Um, it's a quote that I think um, speaks to something that for me personally is very important, which is continuing to learn. Uh, and it's a quote by the musician B.B. King, uh, who says that the beautiful thing about learning is that nobody can take it away from you, um, which I think in the context of COVID and having some of our civil liberties curtailed and having, you know, free movement and free assembly uh, somewhat impinged upon, um, you know, learning is a great outlet. And obviously, in the context of hyper-personalization and uh, data-driven marketing, where it's a very dynamic and, and changeable uh, landscape, um, you know, you'll be in a good, heading in good stead if you, uh, if you invest and, and stay relevant in, in the latest and emergent trends. Excellent. We'll leave it with Brooke for the last top tip. Yeah, so I interpreted a top tip as a slide of top tips. Uh, <laughs> so strap yourself More tips, the better. Yeah, um, read these in your own time, but the really key one I would point out that I haven't touched on yet is don't be afraid to do actual data training. Um, I think there's some marketers that go on to be really high-level executives and managers in businesses, and those are the marketers that are not scared to do research and learning outside marketing. I think there's a really big push just because of some data-driven companies that are now saying, oh, this is this data for marketers and this is this for marketers just because they're trying to sell to you effectively. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best way to learn. Um, one of the books I have here is called Invisible Women, which is exposing data bias in a world designed for men. This is really interesting if you don't know anything about data because what it does is it tells you it's it's depressing in a way, but it shows you sort of how women have been forgotten along the way because some things have only been designed for men. But in that process, you really get an overview of how these processes actually happen and some context for these have been some data-driven decisions, albeit women have been entirely left out of them, but this is what's actually happened. So if you're really new to data, I would it give it it gives you a lot more context around what's actually happening rather than saying this is a statistical model. Um, and then the other things on my reading list are things that I 
always tell my mentees to read. Um, A Hero with a Thousand Faces is by Joseph Campbell. It's one of my favorite books and it is very underrated. It's a lot, but it goes through folklore and it's all about building stories. Because one of the things that I do is I talk to people to find the questions, talk to data to find the answers, tell that as a story because that's how people remember. So it really breaks down how different cultures have told stories over time. And it's a really good read. And then obviously principles that I talked about earlier. Um, And I would say I write a lot on LinkedIn. There's more content there. So if any of this interests you, please jump on there. And I have more things that will align with this. Excellent. Well, it's always a good sign when I see the panelists feverishly writing down um, some of the references that come up, because I think they're all really, really good and definitely worth investigating further. I think, like I said, the top tips will be on our social media. So definitely go check that out and like them. And with that, I think we're wrapping it up for the evening. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. We'll be back again soon.